0: If you got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter six. This morning we're diving back into our study through Acts, which will take us all fall and spring to make our way through. We took a break from it last Sunday for our International Missions Festival. I'm going to go ahead and remind you again that tonight after the evening service in this room, we're having a mission trip interest meeting. We do that every year and uh be going through and talking about each trip we have upcoming this next calendar year. So be praying and and making preparations not to only to be at that meeting tonight, but also uh, where God might want you to go uh, spring break next year, summer next year. Anyway, we're back in Acts today, basically taking a chapter a week, and that would bring us to chapter 6 today. Since we took a week off, let me just remind you kind of where we were in the story and what we've already seen so far. Remember that the book of Acts begins just days after the resurrection of christ that's when it begins um when when the book opens up in chapter one the resurrected jesus is still with his disciples and he's promising them that in just a few days he was going to pour out his spirit upon them just as he had promised in john in john's gospel on the night that he was Uh, betrayed and arrested the 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 last supper he was telling his disciples in john 14 15 and 16 that he was going to even though he was about to go he was going to pour his spirit out on them and his presence would remain with them in that way and he actually told them it would be to their advantage that he that he go away because he was going to send the spirit who would indwell them not just be with them but be in them and and empower them as they seek to follow him so 40 days Forty days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended back up into heaven in Acts chapter 1. That's just 40 days after his resurrection. And then 10 days after that, so 50 days after the resurrection, is Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, which, which the Spirit, Holy Spirit was poured out on all the believers, all 120 of them at that point. When that happened in Acts 2, Spirit was poured out, Peter stood full of the Holy Spirit, And preached to the many thousands that were gathered there for the Jewish feast of Pentecost, and as a result of that sermon and the Spirit moving, three thousand repented and believed that day. All right, and and the the what what happened there is significant because on that day it's on that day that the New Covenant Church of the Lord Jesus Christ was born, and started, right? And it says at the end of Acts two. Uh, that the Lord continued to add to their number day by day those who were being saved. You come to Acts chapter 3, and Peter and John, well, the Lord, through Peter and John, healed a man who was lame from birth. He was in his 40s. He was over 40 years old. And they healed him, and he began to walk and leap and jump. And and Peter and John took the, the occasion of that miracle to then preach to the crowd that had gathered. And that's when the persecution started. Uh, it kick-started the persecution because they arrested Peter and John while they were still preaching. In chapter 4, they're put on trial before the Sanhedrin where they are threatened with violence. If they continue to speak any more to anyone about Jesus, Peter and John were honest and told them they didn't really have a choice, that they had to to keep on doing what they were doing because Jesus had told them and commanded them and commissioned them to be His witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Sanhedrin still threatened them before they let them go. At the end of chapter 4, you have the believers gathered together in prayer, asking the Lord that he would give them boldness to continue to, to be faithful witnesses despite the threats against them. God granted that request, and they continued like they just had been. So much so that in chapter 5, they were arrested again, and, uh, and, and so much... <laughs> They 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 had been continuing that when they were arrested, it was it was so so much that they, they said in chapter five, You have not only have you not continued to speak, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You filled Jerusalem. And it even said that in chapter five that more than ever believers are being added to the Lord. The whole theme of chapter four was boldness, but the whole chapter theme of chapter five was fear of God versus fear of man. And and so the boldness Granted, in chapter 4 is displayed in chapter 5 of them fearing God more than man despite the threats and despite the persecution they continue to bear witness. We come now to chapter 6. And it's not a long chapter at all. It's just 15 verses. But we're going to, fe- we're going to see in this chapter in Acts 6 that in this early church there, it faced struggles, but the struggles didn't all come from one place or one side. But the struggles that this early church faced didn't just come from outside the church but it it also began to come from within the church okay and that's a that's a that's simply a reality that we need to see for what it is it's not just for that church in that day but for every church in every day it's going to face struggles not just from without the church but from within the church and satan wants to hinder the church wants to hinder the effectiveness of the church the witness of the church the joy of the church the unity of the church any way he can do it he can try to put pressure on the church from the culture around it or from the people within it right and or both and that's what we're going to see here in chapter six but more than that we're going to see how the church dealt with that pressure through steadfastly seeking to walk in the fullness of the holy spirit and that's what i want us to see in this chapter and think about the marks of being spirit filled the marks of being spirit filled okay that's going to be our theme and we'll flesh that out in just a minute but before we uh give our direction let's Let's read the chapter together. Again, it's not very long. We'll begin in verse 1. Now in the days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary word. Uh, It is the authority on which we stand. It is the authority by which all of our beliefs and practices ought to be examined and tried. So I pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth that is in these words. Give us minds to understand what we see here hearts to embrace and love the truth that we hear and wills to obey so that we walk faithfully according to it. pray that you would give us all ears to hear and give me help that I need to speak and teach. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is, a, this is an important chapter for a couple of reasons. First, it introduces us to in the first half to what many believe are the first deacons in the local church, uh, which is still instructive for us today. In 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 thinking about the role of deacons in our churches today But also in the second half it introduces us to stephen one of those early deacons Uh who will be a dominant figure in the next chapter and who would be the first? Christian martyr to give his life for christ So this is an important chapter for a lot of reasons, but the focus I want to give it today Are about the marks of being spirit filled first of all specifically the meaning of being spirit filled It's an important question. Um and hopefully we'll, it'll help us to understand it. One, it's, it's just simply important to understand what does it mean to be a spirit-filled Christian? It's important. And two, I want to talk about it because I think it'll help us uh, understand what we find in this chapter. So what does it mean to be spirit-filled? Secondly, what are the marks of a spirit-filled church that we see here in verses one through seven as they dealt with struggles they were facing within the church? What are the marks of a spirit-filled church? And then the latter half, what are the marks of a spirit-filled christian as the focus zooms in on stephen as he dealt with persecution outside the church all right so that's where we're going so let's jump in and think first about about the meaning of being spirit-filled this is an important truth to have clear in your mind and i want to address this i'm not going i'm going to address this like whole bible wise not just from this chapter um because this is it's it's a first, it's an important, it's a first importance to understand. Because it, A, it's just important. Two, it'll help us understand this chapter. But it's a question I get asked from time to time, like specifically the question is the difference between what is baptism in the Holy Spirit versus being filled with the Holy Spirit. I get, I get asked that quite a bit. Uh, if you've never asked that question, no worries. You'll just feel like I did in seminary early on where they were answering questions I didn't even know to ask. It was kind of awesome. But the scriptures do talk about two different things, two different things. And some Christians get confused about them, specifically baptism in the Holy Spirit. And secondly, being filled with the Holy Spirit. What's the difference? Let's think about it. Let's think first, let's start with Old Testament. Even when you're reading the Old Testament, um, it it talks about the, the Holy Spirit and anticipates a coming day in which something new and something significant would happen with regard to the Holy Spirit. Certainly the focus of the Old Testament is on the coming Messiah. The focus is on Christ. When Jesus came, he said, the law, the prophet, the writings, it's all about me. It's pointing forward to me. If you've hung around here for any length of time, you know that when we read the Old Testament, we're always looking for Jesus. It's about Jesus, and it is. But even when the Old Testament is predicting the coming of the Christ, even when it's talking about the coming of the Messiah, very often it describes him in a very particular way, namely as the Spirit-anointed Messiah. He's the Spirit-anointed Messiah who who is going to come. Just a couple of well-known examples so that you see this. One is in Isaiah chapter 11. So here we read, and both of these examples are going to be in, in Isaiah. Isaiah 11 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the Spirit of Wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So the, the Messiah is coming, but when He comes, what's, what is, what is uh, unique about Him? The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon Him. So, and this, this incidentally is, is how John the Baptist was told to recognize Jesus when He came. The one on whom you see the Spirit descend in the, in the form of a dove. right? The one on whom the Spirit rests. That's how you see who is the Messiah. But then later in Isaiah 61... This is a famous passage. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This incidentally is the very passage that Jesus himself stood to read in the synagogue there in Luke chapter 4. And, and when he read it, he rolled it back up and he said, this, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. So when you, have, when you have other passages in the Old Testament saying that one day that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh, like it says in Joel 2.32, you know even before you come to the New Testament that this pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh would happen through the Messiah, through the Spirit-anointed Messiah. The Spirit would be upon the Messiah during His earthly life and ministry, and then the, the, the Messiah would pour out the Spirit on all His people. The Old Testament predicted this. Which is why when you do come to the New Testament, just you're not three chapters into the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 3, when you are introduced to John the Baptist, who says, I baptize you with water for repentance in Matthew 3.11. But he who is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So the first mention of baptism in the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. John saying, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself, in the first chapter of Acts, if you recall, back in Acts 1-5, Jesus himself said, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, which would be what he did in Acts chapter 2, and did for every believer. Every believer. More on that in a minute. When you come to the rest of the New Testament, flesh you get out in like Paul's letters and stuff. It's clear that baptism in the Holy Spirit is something that, one, happens to every believer. Every believer. There is not in the New Testament a, a, a category for a believer who has not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Happens to every believer. And two, happens the, it coincides with the very moment you believe. Happens to every believer and happens the moment you believe. From the very beginning couple of examples for example in first corinthians 12 12 and 13 paul writes to the church in corinth for just as the body is one and has uh and and has many is one and many members all the members of the body though many are one body so it is with christ for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body jews are greeks slaves are free and all were made to drink of one spirit so he's saying that Every believer in the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, at least there in corinth i don't know why they would be any different than every other church. Every believer in that church had been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and that that fits with other things you see in paul's letters, for example, in ephesians two eighteen Paul says, "For through him that is through Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father we don't, we don't come to the Father apart from through Jesus Christ, but when we come to the Father through Jesus Christ, we're coming in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the enabling of the Holy Spirit. This is true of every believer. In fact, 1 Corinthians twelve three says, we can't even profess faith in Jesus Christ and be genuine about it except apart from the, 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 the enabling of the Spirit of God. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9, Paul says bluntly, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So, we come to Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and can't do it apart from Him. And if we don't have the Spirit, we don't have Christ. And as we saw 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and Acts 1, 5, this is called being baptized in the Holy Spirit. What is the sacrament, what is the ordinance that, that Christ gave to His church to mark the entryway into the church. Water baptism, right? Happens on the front end to mark a person's coming into the kingdom by repentance and faith. And that water baptism is just an outward picture of something that's already happened in our hearts that is spirit baptism, right? True of every believer from the very first moment we believe. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is something that happens one time and never happens again. It's one time, never to be repeated. It's interesting, though, that in Acts 1-5, when Jesus says that he would baptize the believers uh, in just a few days with the Holy Spirit, when it actually happens in Acts chapter 2, it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. He said they would be baptized, and it says they were filled. <laughs> well, I don't, think that, I don't think that that means that they're the same thing. I think, I, 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 and I'm just, I'm not because I just don't want to believe that they're the same thing. I think the, spirit, uh, the, the scriptures bear this out. It, it does mean, I think, that because we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life from the very beginning, from the first uh, breath of faith that we breathe, we thus have his presence in our lives, it is the expectation then of the New Testament that we be filled with the Holy Spirit every successive moment of our Christian life. We come into the, 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 the family of faith through baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it's the expectation of the New Testament that we then walk by, by moment by moment in the fullness of the Holy Spirit from that moment on. Okay, They're not the same thing, but it is the expectation that they coincide. We see this to be true all through Acts. Let me just give you full examples. Believers, for example, are being just described in, just in general as part of their ongoing lives that they are full of the Holy Spirit. We see that to be true here in Acts chapter 6. Look in verse 3, where it says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit. So you, you, the expectation is among you, you're going to have men who's at just an ongoing characteristic of their life that they are full of the Holy Spirit. These seven of them. In Acts eleven twenty four, 24, Barnabas is described in this way. In Acts 13, 52, all the believers in the church at Antioch Pisidia are described this way. It says, and the disciples there in Antioch Pisidia were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's just an ongoing characteristic of their lives. Full of joy, full of the Holy Spirit. And so in this sense, being filled with the Holy Spirit simply means that just as the Holy Spirit brought you into saving faith on the first day, you are now seeking to walk in the fullness of His presence every day thereafter. It every day. the Baptism of the Holy Spirit is a one-time thing. It it can't be gained or lost, but the fullness of the Holy Spirit can. The fullness of the Holy Spirit in your life can be gained. It can be lost. It can be lost through disobedience. It can be lost through neglect. That's what the scriptures mean in Ephesians when it says you can grieve the Holy Spirit, right? You can quench the Spirit. That means... That that through neglect or disobedience of your lives, you have disrupted the fellowship you have, the moment-by-moment fellowship you have with God through the Holy Spirit. But it can be regained. It can be regained through His Word dwelling richly in you and prayerfully seeking to walk in obedience. Ephesians 5.18 commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In this sense, it's a command that we're to seek to obey. So the fullness of the Holy Spirit in one sense is to be just a daily ongoing um, walking in the presence of God, seeking to walk in the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. It's the daily expectation. But when you read Acts, clearly there's another sense in which the Scripture talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's, and it's in this sense that there are particular moments in our lives, even if we woke up that morning and, and got in the Word and got in prayer and we are already Walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, there are moments in our lives where that presence is heightened in us to equip us and enable us for an immediate task at hand. Am I making sense? Like you are already, It's not like you're walking in disobedience. You are already walking in obedience. You want to be faithful to the Lord, and He's with you. You're walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, but there's a moment in your life, uh, uh, a task immediately at hand, in which the Holy Spirit heightens that awareness of his presence and comes upon you in, a, in an even more special way. We saw that in Acts chapter 2 when they were filled with the Holy Spirit for the immediate purpose of speaking in tongues as a sign to the other believers who are there. Or, or Peter, the Spirit coming upon him for the immediate task of standing to preach to the thousands that were there. When just 50 days earlier, Peter was a, a scared guy to, to even bear witness to a little girl don't you know Jesus Christ? Didn't I see you with him? No, and he cursed at her. Now, full of the Holy Spirit in this moment for this immediate task, the Spirit comes upon him, and he's bold and he preaches. We see that later in the chapter, of, uh, chapter uh, 431. When they pray for boldness, it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit then for the immediate task of preaching boldly despite the threats. There are so many other examples in Acts that we don't have time to consider. But more immediately for our purposes today, we see both of those senses were true of Stephen. You come to Acts chapter 6, both of those senses were true of Stephen. He's described as being a man who as a general ongoing characteristic of his life was full of the Spirit. But in the next chapter, Acts chapter 7, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit in an even more intense way to face his martyr's death, right? So to summarize all I'm trying to say here, I've tried to help us understand not only this issue between baptism and fullness of the Holy Spirit, but also to help us understand what we're going to see here in Acts chapter 6. All believers have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. All believers. That's what makes you a believer, right? It's a one-time event that coincides with the moment you first believe. It's not something that happens later. It is not lost or regained. Every believer has the Holy Spirit who brought them to faith and seals them in Christ until the very end. That's baptism. But then also, all believers are expected, moment by moment, to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, which is an ongoing reality and is to be repeated again and again. Ephesians 5, 18, be filled with the Spirit. It's in the present tense, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and it, can, it can be repeated again and again as we dwell in his word and prayerfully seek to walk in obedience. It can be lost by disobedience, regained through repentance and faith. Again, not that we lose our salvation, we just lose, lose the, the fullness of his presence with us. Sometimes the Lord also graciously fills us with the Holy Spirit in special moments to enable us to obey and honor him in the immediate task in front of us. So when we come to Acts chapter 6, we see both the church in Jerusalem and Stephen in particular seeking to walk in the fullness of the Spirit in their daily lives. And that's what I want us to see in our remaining time this morning from Acts 6. What are the marks of that in both the church as a whole, who's seeking to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and then in Stephen in particular as he walks in full of the Holy Spirit? What does it look like? So let's think first about the marks of a Spirit-filled church. I told you earlier that, that Satan attacks the church from, from all directions, both from within and from without. And the church as a whole uh, is an example of the former attack within. Stephen, in particular, is an example of the latter attack from without. And, and we, we read about the struggle within uh, right at the outset of the chapter. Look at verse 1 again. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... Typically, Satan is going to want to attack when times are good in the church. When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. This is racial tension in the church. This racial tension in the church. Who were the Hellenists? The Hellenists were Greek greek speaking and then there was tension between them and the ethnically hebrew and hebrew speaking uh, christians the greek speaking uh, christians claimed that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food the hebrew women weren't being the hebrew widows were not being neglected but they were that's not a light thing it's not a light thing it's a life and death thing if they can't eat they can't live but imagine how this, if, if left unaddressed, imagine how this could have wrecked the church. Just wrecked the church and distorted the gospel of Christ if they did nothing about it. But what, what, they did do something about it. What did they do? They called the whole church together. And among other things, in verse 3, they said, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty." in my view full of the spirit explains the other characteristics listed there a man who is full or a woman (laughs) who's full of the spirit will be full of wisdom the spirit's wisdom remember back to that isaiah 11 passage when it talked about the coming messiah the spirit of the lord would rest on him the spirit of wisdom the spirit of counsel so man a person in whom the spirit of god is, is the 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 wisdom of the Lord will, be, will come with it and therefore be of good repute, right? These seven men were full of the Holy Spirit. And what were they being tasked with? Tasked with restoring unity in that church body. They were tasked with restoring unity in that church body. I think it's noteworthy that the church selected these seven men, every one of whom had Greek names. So there was a strong desire for unity in that church whenever it was threatened. They had, they had no desire for there to be discord or disunity uh, in, their, in their fellowship. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, 3 that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So a, a Spirit-filled church has a desire to keep unity with each other which means sacrificing and going out of your way for each other sometimes to get it and to have it it might mean humbling yourself and asking for forgiveness it might be overlooking an offense yourself it might be sacrificing your time it might mean sacrificing potentially what someone else thinks of you It can be hard to regain when it is lost. But in a spirit-filled church, they strive for that no matter the cost. Spirit-filled church has a desire to keep unity with each other. That's one mark. But another mark of this spirit-filled church uh, is revealed when when the issue was made known to them. And they say in verse 2, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And after that, they, they, they tasked the church with appointing these seven men, and they say in verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. After they twice said that, we're going to devote ourselves to the Word. We're going to devote ourselves to the Word and to prayer. We're told in verse 5, what they said pleased the whole gathering. They all agreed. That's remarkable. A Spirit-filled church is not only strongly desires to maintain Christ-like unity with each other, but they also put a high priority on prayer and the Word. And when everybody together is praying together, it's that much more likely they will have unity together. But it makes complete sense that they would put a high priority on prayer and the Word. Because, hear me on this, being, being filled with the Spirit isn't just some mystical zapping the lord does to you okay being filled with the spirit is not some mystical zapping that the lord does to you but it comes through his word dwelling richly in us it comes with the spirit's words dwelling richly in us right it's not it's not purely mechanical but it's not purely mystical either, right? Being filled with the Spirit is certainly more than the Spirit's words dwelling in us, but it's certainly not less than that. That's why it's here combined with prayer. When we're constant in His Word and constant in prayer, His Spirit is constantly filling us as we seek to walk in obedience, which isn't surprising that when you come to the third mark of the Spirit-filled church, not only were they eager to maintain unity in their fellowship and eager to dwell deeply in the word and prayer that was the second mark but they have an equally strong desire to bear witness to christ that's the third mark so the the first mark of a spirit-filled church is they have a strong desire for unity second they have a deep desire to to be deeply in the word and prayer and thirdly they have an equally strong desire to bear witness to christ there's an amazing statement here in verse 7 And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's where a lot of the trouble (laughs) would arise for Stephen. But all I want to say here is that about this third mark of a Spirit-filled church is that the word of of God, the word of Christ, does not increase anywhere without our taking it. The word of Christ, the word of God is not just going to Magically increase anywhere. He's tasked us with How will they hear unless someone preaches? How will they hear unless they're sent? If the word of God was increasing here, they were taking it. They were preaching it. They were sharing it. Right? These are all marks of a spirit-filled church where God is very obviously present and blessing. These are marks that we should strive for together beginning with our devotion to prayer and and, and the Word, and then that being expressed in unity with each other and bearing witness to Christ. Certainly, these these are things that should characterize each one of us, but the text here presents them as marks we should strive for together. We should strive for together, which we can do when we come together on Sundays, when we come together on Wednesdays, but also throughout the week in our missional community groups. Think about these. What kind of unity characterizes our our missional community group, right? How devoted are we as a church and as a missional community group? How devoted are we not not only to the Word, but also to prayer together? And and is that overflowing in our lives together in terms of bearing witness to Christ? These are the marks of a Spirit-filled church. But quickly, as the chapter comes to the second half, it leaves the church wide focus and zooms in on one particular man, Stephen. And the chapter is so adamant. If you read it ahead of time, you might notice this. The the chapter is so adamant to describe Stephen to us. To describe him. Think with me from his example about the marks of a spirit-filled Christian. First of all, of these seven men that you read about in verse 5, These seven men, aside from Nicanor, uh, excuse me, uh, Nicolaus, who was a proselyte of Antioch, aside from him, Stephen is the only other of these seven men who is singled out for more descriptions. Right? And he's given several descriptions here. In verse 5, he's full of faith. In verse 8, he's full of grace. Also in verse 8, he's full of power. In verse 10, he's full of wisdom, but uh, the only uh, description of him that is given more than once, given twice, in fact, is that he was full of the Spirit, both in verse 5 and in verse 10. And it seems significant, that seems significant to me, insofar as uh, we're told so much that he was full of the Spirit. That's significant because... Back in verse 3, it was already told to us that they were looking for seven men who were already full of the Holy Spirit. So when Stephen is among that number, you're already to assume that Peter, I mean, excuse me, that Stephen is full of the Spirit just like the other six men. But then he singled out and we're told it twice more. These seven men were full of the Spirit, but Stephen was full of the Spirit. Stephen was full of the Spirit. That's what he's saying. That tells me that, that, that for Stephen, the, the filling of the Spirit here is more than just the expectation of all of us on an ongoing daily basis of keeping in step with the Spirit, as Paul would tell the Ephesians. But the Lord was also filling him in a, in a, in a, in a more intense way for an immediate task of bearing witness to Christ enabling him and three marks also seem to rise to the surface in these verses about Stephen as a spirit-filled Christian the first mark is uh, of a spirit-filled Christian is the spirit's help for us to bear witness that's what Jesus said the spirit would come to do in John 16 Jesus said he the spirit when the spirit comes he will glorify me he will glorify me so the mark of a Spirit-filled person is not that they say a lot about the Spirit, it's that they say a lot about Jesus. It's not that they talk a lot about the Spirit, it's not a lot that they talk a lot about their gifts, they talk a lot about Jesus. So the first mark of a Spirit-filled Christian is that they bear witness to Christ. Which is not a surprise, since we've known that since chapter 1, when, when Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. For what? You will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, into to the ends of the earth. That's what's happening here in chapter 6. Remember that we're told in, in, in verse 7 that even many of the priests were coming to, the, uh, to faith in Christ? Well, that didn't sit well with others in the synagogue. And it says in verse 9 that they began to, to dispute with Stephen about the Lord and about the Scriptures. Well, notice carefully what verse 10 says. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the Spirit. With which he was speaking. The Holy Spirit was empowering him with words. And with wisdom. Beyond his natural capability to bear witness to Christ. In that situation. And just hear me on this. This is not something that God simply did for Stephen alone. And nobody else. Right? This is a promise and an assurance he gives to all of us when we desire to bear witness to someone just as Stephen did, and we need his help for that, be sure he will give it. But also be sure of the second mark, which is it will invite, if, you're, if you go through this world as a spirit-filled Christian, it will invite the world's contempt. I'm not trying to sugarcoat anything for sure. It will invite the world's contempt. Even when... The Spirit helps us to bear witness to Christ. We should not think that means only good things and only comforting things will come as a result. It didn't for Stephen, and it won't for us. In verses 11 through 14, I don't have room to put it all up on the screen, but it, looking in your Bible, in verses 11 to 14, it's like Stephen is on trial. It is remarkable, by the way, Uh in chapter 6 and also in the next chapter, chapter 7, to compare the similarities between his trial and ultimately his death with Jesus' trial and Jesus' death. There are some crazy similarities between the two. But what do they do when he's on trial? They twist his words. They lie about him. They slander him. They say in verse 11 that he spoke evil against Moses. That's just not true. In the next chapter, in verse 20, Stephen says Moses was beautiful in God's sight. In verse 22, that Moses was mighty in words and deeds. So he wasn't speaking ill of Moses, but they said he was. They slandered him. They hated him. They lied about him. Jesus said, we shouldn't be surprised at that. If they hated me, they'll hate you. That's the second mark of a spirit-filled Christian is that we will often be held in contempt by the world because we're bearing witness to Christ. It's, it's just another way of saying that being a Spirit-filled Christian is being a Christ-like Christian. There's a third mark and a final mark, though. And that in all this, the third mark is of being a Spirit-filled Christian is that you have the Lord's supernatural peace. You have the Lord's supernatural peace. Look at what it says of, the, of Spirit-filled stephen in the last verse of the chapter as he is enduring the slander and the scorn of those who were ultimately about to stone him to death verse 15 says and gazing at him all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel I saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is, by the way, ironically, an allusion back to Moses. (laughs) They had just said that he speaks ill of Moses, which wasn't true. But Stephen's face was shining just like Moses' face shined when he had been in the presence of the glory of the Lord. Moses was in the Lord's presence receiving the Ten Commandments, receiving the very words of God, When he came down from the mountain, his face shone like the face of an angel. Likewise, Stephen very obviously received the same, which he's about to unload on them in chapter 7, the word of God to them. And his face shone like Moses' face. Isn't that sweet? But as they slandered him and they scorned him, the supernatural peace of God from the Spirit's presence with him Held him still in that moment. And and, and he was full of confidence in the Lord and full of his comfort. The Holy Spirit is the helper, just as Jesus promised he would be. And his presence and help is to be sought after. It's to be sought after by us together as a church to walk in unity, to, to, to let the word dwell in us richly, Right? But he makes his presence known to us as we seek it individually, too. Not just for his own glory, but for Christ's glory in and through us. Let's pray.